Well, good morning. Um, usually, when we start a new series, we'll kind of promo it, first sermon or two, kind of cover it with what we call a bumper video, just kind of set it up. But more than likely, we're going to show the same video the next several weeks as we kind of prepare. And usually I don't like to do that because it takes up a minute and a half of time. And we don't have an extra minute and a half to cover with some silly video. But boy, do I identify with that video so much. And, and maybe you do as well. I'm not sure. Um, particularly as it relates to New Year's. And so since we're in a new year and a new decade, it just would uh, make sense that we would start and consider and pause and go... Could this be our best year ever? Could this be our year? And typically, um, there's two different types of people. We talked about this last week briefly. Um, that kind of look at New Year's and come up with what we call New Year's resolution, New Decade resolution, whatever whatever you would call it. And in one category, there there are people that we would I would put myself in that category. Um, the dreamers, right? They think everything's a possibility. They think everything's a, a, a really cool opportunity, and they are always coming to New Year thinking this is going to be their year. Right, this is the year you're going to lose the 30 pounds, and that's why you put the workout gym in your basement and, you know, signed up for all sorts of newsletters and ordered all sorts of protein shakes and powders and food and, you know, and all those different things, right, the dreamers. And what, fortunately for most of us dreamers is um, after a few days, few weeks, few months, we get distracted by the next shiny thing. And so since we think everything's an opportunity, we just are always moving on to the next thing, leaving the last thing behind. And many of you are in kind of that category, right? And so... While you really are excited about this new year and you've convinced yourself that this is going to be the year, and perhaps some of you said, this is going to be the year I'm actually going to read the Bible, right? And here we are in whatever day this is, day number 12, and you missed day number 7 and then day number 8, so you realize that no longer you're not going to do it, so you just stopped, right? And um, no, that's one category, the dreamers. The other category... Um, would be the, the realist, right? They have already counted the cost, and particularly they look and go, nope, there's no way that's going to happen, right? There's just no way that's going to happen. And the unique thing about it is a lot of times if you're married, the realist and the dreamer, they kind of get together, right? That's really important because someone's got to pay the bills, you understand? And someone's got to keep the focus. And so realists and dreamers get together. And, and yet what I kind of wanted us to see last week, going to spend the next several weeks kind of talking about, is there's this one word, one word, that determines how you view and approach New Year's resolutions uh, in any type of goals. And here's the word right here in front of you. And it's the word possibility. Now, what you may have heard last week, and I want to make sure I communicate this better this week, is that I, one of the things is, is if you believe something's possible, then perhaps it is. But if you believe it's not possible, you are correct, right? So the, those of you who buy lottery tickets, the reason you buy a lottery ticket is because you actually think it's possible for you to win the lottery, right? And the minute that you would come to the conclusion that it's no longer possible, you would stop, right? Many of you have worked really, really hard on your job trying to get that promotion, and you're working really, really hard because you think it's possible that you can get the promotion, that you can get the raise. And then when you find out it's no longer possible, all of a sudden your work ethic, your approach to work, your excitement about the job all changes. And so in many ways, when we look at dreamers, dreamers, kind of part of the problem with possibility is keeping them focused on something, one possibility, not lots of possibilities. So if you're looking and go, a dreamer would look and see all these different elevators in front of them. And sometimes what happens for them is they go, we're not sure exactly which elevator to get on. So you hop on one and go, no, I got to get off and get on the next one. And you just exhaust yourself and the people around you. Now on the other side, the realist, it's not that you don't believe in possibility. But what you think is possible is that next dream could actually bankrupt you. 
right? It is. Those next things could actually, you go, yeah, I think it's a possibility I could work out this year, but I'm going to go in on day three of working out. I'm going to pull a muscle in my back, and no longer is it possible for me to work out, and then it's not going to be possible for me to keep my job or go to work, right? And so it's not that you don't believe in possibilities. You just see it through a different lens. And so if I can give you a picture of that, um, kind of the idea would be dreamers are going, okay, let's find the right elevator, and for realists, it's going, hey, could you just see that little crack right there in the elevator? Perhaps, perhaps you should step onto this. And you're going, ah, I'm not so sure. So to help us all focus, to help us all get kind of on the same page, instead of asking you this year, what do you think is possible, right? Better question that I want you to ask all year long, and I, I sincerely mean this. I sincerely believe it could change everything for you. Change your year, change your decade. Um, better question that we should ask is, what does God think is possible for you this year. Now, this helps uh, focus the dreamer because you know what? God is not that interested in you just chasing after pleasure all year. He doesn't want you to wreck your marriage, right? God isn't interested in you winning $100 million just so you can eat, drink, and be merry, right? So when you start asking the question, what does God think is possible, then at least shapes what we're looking at to kind of consider, okay, what would God want for me this year? And in his power and his might make that happen for the dreamer. And for the realist, it's going, well, Maybe you don't think it's possible. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that you can't do anything else to make your marriage better, to make your workplace better, to get your kids to reconcile with each other, whatever that is, right? Maybe you don't think it's possible anymore. That's fair, right? Because you have possibility, right? You believe in possibility. It's like you think there's a possibility that you have a cavity, so you start flossing more, brushing your teeth more, right? It's not you don't believe in possibility, but to help you focus, go, what does God think is possible? For you this year. And this is what gets really, really exciting. When you look at spiritual movements, revivals across the world, right? From now happening in Asia to in America hundreds of years ago to across the globe, they all kind of originated with this possibility where all of a sudden their eyes open. That's why I was so excited to sit here with you guys, right? And sit on that pew and hear you sing Waymaker, Miracle Worker promise keeper. Like, I heard you. You were singing it. Like, perhaps, perhaps you actually believe that's true. And that's where revival and movements and awakening start when we go, yep, we actually think that the God of the impossible can do that. The God of the impossible can make it possible because what God thinks is possible is possible. So these big movements happen there. Even for you across your life, a lot of your spiritual moments happen because you believed that God could do something. Right? Now, if you're not into all this Christian stuff, there's probably a couple of reasons. One, maybe because it's just hard for you to believe in this God you've never interacted with. That's fair. completely understand that. Now, I would just say, how is all this possible? Right? Like, a bunch of humans in a room. Maybe if you want to go back thousands, millions, billions, whatever, whatever your timeline is on how you think all this played out. I mean, at some point, we have to pause and go, how in the world is this possible? And if you spend enough time thinking about that, you would have to conclude that the circumstances that create all this were nearly, if not definitely, completely impossible. And yet, here we are. So maybe it's some of that. You're going, I just have a hard time believing in the God of the impossible. Okay, that's fine. Stay with us. But for others of you, what, it's not that you don't believe in some deistic God, some God or theistic God, some God out there. You just don't think he's that good. And the reason you don't think he's that good is because you saw your parents, your aunt, your uncle, your grandparents get really, really, really excited about this God and make all these bold claims and make all these bold promises because they thought something was possible. And then you saw them, 
your dad, your mom, your sister, your brother, grandparents, your boss, wreck their lives. And go from this, I believe all things are possible, that God is so great, to, nope, no longer do I believe it. In fact, what that means is, some of the greatest awakenings that happen are because we believe the God of the impossible. And some of the greatest crashes that happen in people's lives and worlds is because all of a sudden they decided that it was no longer possible. So this possibility, this idea is really, really significant. As long as we keep it out there and keep chasing after God, but the minute that God does not meet your expectations, then all this comes crashing down. So we go, what do we do with all that? Maybe it'll help you with your New Year's resolutions. Maybe it'll help you with this decade. Maybe it'll help you with your family. Whatever that is, I think it's worth your time to consider. And here's a really gracious thing about God. You're not the first person to wrestle through all this. You're just not. And in fact, we all kind of wrestle through it in the same pattern. And this has happened for millenniums, right? For uh, multiple thousands of years, the same story's been happening. And if you go back into the beginning of the scriptures, God, God of the impossible, did something ridiculous and impossible and implausible. And he spoke the world into existence. And then at the pinnacle of his creation, he created humans. And by the way, that is the most plausible explanation for how in the world we got here. Something greater than us, something more intelligent than us, something bigger, something more impossible than us creates all this. And if you were to read through kind of the, the Bible in the beginning, there's this book, uh, Genesis, means, you know, um, origins. It's where we get genes from, even thinking about generations and stuff, right? And the first ten chapters, you see this story of God creating human beings and inviting them into the land of possibility. Right? Just invites them into it. But as you keep reading, it's real easy to think kind of some uh, negative thoughts or things that I can about God. Because if you read Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 10, it's kind of the same story. Where God does all this great stuff for humans, and humans continue to go, no, we like our plan better than yours. And they continue to turn their back on God to the point where they wreck their lives, wreck their families, and wreck this world. And if you're to read it, you're going, is God not very smart? I mean, is he like a codependent teenager who thinks that other person is going to make his world better and so he spends all of his time and energy trying to fix the other person. Like you read the first ten chapters, it's kind of like, oh God, what's going on with you here? You keep doing the same thing and they keep doing the same thing. But so are you expecting different results? Because you know the definition of insanity, right? So is the God of the universe insane? That he keeps creating people, keep, create, keeps creating great lands of possibility and they keep turning their back on him. And so that's how you could conclude in the first 10 chapters of, man, the human beings keep doing the same thing we do, and we keep making promises that we're never going to keep. We keep wrecking our own lives to the point where we always end up in a, end up in a ditch going, God, would you save us? Right? Then all of a sudden, Genesis chapter 11, the whole Bible changes. And God basically makes this declaration, hey, hey, I'm not counting on you. I don't need you for me to be happy. I'm not codependent. I'm not needy. I am the God who will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the self-sustaining God. I do not need you, but I'm letting you in in my world because you need me. Right? And so then he takes this guy, a guy named Abram, by the way, who is a broken pagan just like the rest of us. His dad had his own issues, right? Uh, had his own family of origin stuff. And he looks at Abram and he says, Abram, I'm going to make a covenant to you. That word means without stipulations. I want to make a covenant that is a promise that you can guarantee. You can take it to the bank. It is going to happen regardless of your behavior, Abram. In fact, Abram, your names mean daddy. You don't have any kids yet, but I'm going to do something impossible through your barren wife and give you kids. But I'm also going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. Because instead of being daddy, you're going to be big daddy. And you're going to be the father of many nations. And he literally tells them, look up at the sky. 
and say, you see all those stars, Abraham? That's going to be the number of your descendants. By the way, you can chart down thousands of years. If we could go to Ancestry.com, you and me and 23 or whatever, 23 and me or whatever those DNA, you know, things there are online now that help you, people solve crimes. That's why I'm not filling it out. I don't think I've done anything wrong. But just in case, you know, I don't want to, you know. But if you could chart it down far enough, every single one of us, somewhere in our great, 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 grandfather's lineage, you would find Abraham. Doesn't matter if you're a Muslim. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. For all of us. It all kind of comes to this place in Genesis chapter 11 where God says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And to help them understand that, he creates, he basically says, Abraham, you're going to have kids. He has his first kid, Isaac, or his second kid. Don't have time to explain that story. And Isaac has another kid named Jacob. So Abraham's grandson's name is Jacob. And Jacob really wrestles with this guy that's filled with possibility. In fact, he's not so certain that God is good and that God will do the impossible. So Jacob spends most of his life being manipulative and coercive. He does all sorts of broken things, just like we do. He would cheat on his taxes if there were taxes. He would do all those things. He literally manipulated his brother out of his birthright because he wasn't sure that God was good. He wasn't sure that God was filled with possibility. So literally his entire life, he wrestled with whether or not he could lean in and trust God fully. But it's better than coming up to, with the conclusion that he couldn't at all, which is what many of us have done. If you look all across our globe, it's people that go, nope, there is no God of impossible. That the God of impossible is not possible, right? And so Jacob kind of played the hokey pokey going, sometimes God, I think you're so good. And I think you really have a plan. Other times he's going, I don't think you do. And literally God and Jacob had this wrestling match, right? So crazy story. And literally his name gets changed from Jacob to, you'll know this name, Israel. Because that name literally means wrestling with God, which is what we all do. God, I think you're good. God, I think you're good. No, I just do my own thing. And so Israel, Jacob becomes Israel and he has these 12 kids. And they become this nation. And this nation kind of represents everything we struggle with. So when you look at the world in kind of, you know, ancient past, you would see basically two different types of movements. You'd see people who wrestle with God, which I hope that's us. People who think that God could be good, but they're not quite sure. People who try to trust God, but then uh, continue to take the reins back in their own life. There's those people. That's Israel. And then there's all the other nations. You know, those nations said... We don't think God's good. We have no interest in God. So while it's a really sad nation doing really bad things, it's better than the, uh, the, uh, the alternative, which is they just chase after their own stuff. They wrestle with the tension and brokenness of not fully trusting God, but really wanting to. Right? And you could see this group of people who are filled with the hope and possibility. But because they wrestled with God, they didn't always do the right thing. And what would happen is they would over and over again tell God, hey, we don't really need your help in this. We got it from here, right? You know how this story works when you're trying to help your kid with something and they're going, I got it. And you know exactly how it's going to play out, right? And you're already irritated before it starts, but you go, okay. Then it's an hour or two later, you have to go back and fix the Legos, rebuild the car, whatever it is, right? And so Israel's like telling their dad, we got it from here. And every time what would happen is they'd end up in this broken spot. And the ways that they ended up in broken spots were pretty hefty. Like they would literally become enslaved to these nations who had no interest in God. At one point in Israel's kind of history, these, uh, these whole, this whole nation became enslaved with debt and all sorts of stuff to the nation of Egypt. 
right? They kind of tried to tether themselves to this great mighty nation. And what they ended up doing is becoming slaves to the leaders of Egypt. And God in his graciousness goes, man, they cry out to God. And God sends a kind of a chief in Moses to lead them out of this, this, this captivity, right? This enslavement. And so what happens, they get led out. This is where you know the story of the Red Sea and the Ten Plagues, Ten Commandments, Moses, all beautiful stuff. And they end up wandering for like 40 years because this is like, you know, when your kid says, I can do this. And you kind of step back and go, okay, have your way. Literally, God does that with the Israelites. And for 40 years, they wander through the wilderness till finally, 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 they go, we don't want this anymore. And they, um, Moses is kind of a, a, a apprentice, this guy named Joshua, a Hebrew word for warrior, king, and deliverer, right? Moses' apprentice leads these Israelites into this beautiful land that we would call, uh, you know it as the promised land, but it's a land filled with possibility. And so for uh, Moses, or Joshua's life, these folks are going to this land. And the way that I described it last week, I think it's really a pretty good understanding. It's like they moved into a new house. And all the different tribes, all 12 sons, kids and kids and kids and grandkids, right? They, they all got their own piece of land. Like you give your kid their own room. But you don't really give them their own room, right? They can't paint it black. Some of you can if you like that color or want to put stars there. But like there, there's still some stipulations to how you operate in your room. And so a couple of things happened. These different Israelite tribes went and kind of take their own land, but they invited all sorts of really terrible stuff in it. This would be like much worse than the things, the posters your kids want to hang up on their walls. Like, you know what I'm talking about, like Eagles posters or whatever those things are, right? It's much worse than that, right? And so they put all this broken stuff in their room, and God was like, clean up your land. And Joshua would say, clean up your land, and they'd kind of do it. You know, it's like when you move into a new house and you're all excited, you got all the boxes, and those boxes you're all excited about hanging up on the walls, four, five, six years later, you just want to light on fire because they're still there. Right? That's what happens for the nation of Israel. And so Joshua continues to call them back to this land of possibility. But as soon as Joshua dies, you get this new book of the Bible. It's called the book of Judges. And what happens is you see this broken pattern that happens over and over again where basically uh, they walk away the whole Israelite nation which is what we do too they walk away this, from this land of possibility God could do great things and all of a sudden they become suspicious of God and they go God we're not sure, sure you're so good anymore and so what they do is they rebel they go God we like our plan better than yours right we got it from here what does God do in his anger in his anger so God's going how dare you think that you can do the job of a savior and a God and a perfect king. How dare you think you can do that? In, his, in your arrogance, God goes, okay, okay. And this is the way his anger plays out throughout the scriptures. It literally says that God turns them over. By that he means, have your way. Do which one? Oh, you think you can build it? Go for it. Oh, you think that's going to be good for you? Oh, have it. Oh, you think you can live on your own? Oh, go do it, right? And so God doesn't punish them like with a hammer and screaming and yelling and kicking, right? God literally just turns them over to their desires. So there goes, okay, you want to do that? You can do that. And inevitably, every single time, right? What happens in the middle of that for the Israelites, what happens for us, is that when, when God turns us over to go, oh, we can chase after this, we can eat, drink, we can marry, we can fill ourselves with stuff, right? Here's a really simple example. Last time you went to one of those smorgasbords, and you had all that food in front of you, and you're going, oh, I can eat all this, right? And you start eating, you're like, might as well get a third dessert, because I've already paid for it, right? And then you go and sit in your car, and the first thing you do is you unbutton your pants. 
And then you can't drive yet, so you just sit there for a while. And your stomach hurts so bad. You're going, I just spent 40 bucks in an hour and a half picking up all those germs in that smorgasbord. I probably have hepatitis C. And my stomach hurts because of that Band-Aid. I failed in the macaroni and cheese, right? And you do all that stuff, and you pay for it just to be miserable. Right? And so God literally turns them over, and what they feel here is pain. Now, I wish I had to spend a little bit more time here last week. Didn't have time. But pain is actually a really beautiful gift. Like this isn't God being mean to us. Pain is a gift to us. We don't like it. We spend our whole life trying to avoid it and medicate ourselves from it. Right? We avoid pain at all costs and just hold on to that because we're coming back to it later. We avoid it at all costs, but it is a gift. It's a gift because all pain is doing is telling us there is something wrong. That something needs to be fixed. And the Israelites picked up on this. They're in so much pain. They felt so much stress. They finally go, we can't live this way anymore. Right? Dave Ramsey, John Towns, and others will say, people only change when the pain of the same gets greater than the pain of the change. That's why you hear to the, if you're codependent, you can't quit, keep picking up after the person. Because they're not feeling the pain of their own life. You're feeling the pain of their life. So you're trying to continue to change them more. But you can't change them. People only change when the pain of the same gets greater than the pain of the change change. So in the middle of all the Israelites' pain, our pain, we crowd to God, they crowd to God, and what does God do? They repent. And God, in His great love, sends a Savior to pull us up out of this. And what you're going to see in the book of Judges is this happens literally 12 times, a dozen times, that this same pattern goes on and on and on. They cry out. God comes in and saves them, invites them back to this beautiful land of possibility. And all is possible and good again. Just until they go, okay, God, we got it from here. So new year, new decade. Maybe we can break this pattern and perhaps we can break it by looking at this nation who struggles with it the whole time. So what you're going to see is 12 different judges kind of play out. And did, I'll, I'll tell you, these stories are disturbing. They're disturbing. If you just read Judges chapter 1, we're just kind of like the summary of what all happens. It is disturbing. And I'm going to share with you a couple of the stories. So we're going to, there's, um, in the first, uh, so you got Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 1 and 2 that kind of set up this landscape. Judges chapter 3, which kind of introduces these different judges. Now just understand, a judge typically is not a, um, not a guy who wears like a wig and wears a robe and helps you follow the law. Um, in the scriptures, a judge is like a rescuer, someone who delivers them. Now, I want you to understand, these judges are broken people. So this is where we go. Well, that's good they have a judge, but I hope there's a better judge. And there is, right? And so these 12 judges are going to continue to uh, save them. And so you see kind of the first judge in Judges chapter 3, a guy named Othniel, right? And we get very little narrative of him. And then there's a longer narrative about a guy named Ehud. We're going to be there in J Judges chapter 3 in just a second. Then there's another short narrative at the end of Judges chapter 3. And then in Judges chapter 4, this really long narrative of this woman judge named Deborah. And it's a long story. And I want to make sure you get the story and understand the story. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but I do want you to get a summary of it because your kiddos and kids are also talking about Deborah. And so here's a quick video that kind of walks through Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5 of Deborah's life as a judge and the deliverance. And then we're going to come back and read Judges chapter 3. So here we go. Here goes. God's story. Deborah. So part of God's story is about a woman named Deborah. And it goes like this. God's special family was in some trouble. You see, Israel had started to turn away from God and stop following him. But because God loved his family, he wanted to send them a reminder that he was in charge and that it was really important to follow him. And so God allowed Jabin, the king of Canaan, to take over Israel. Now, Jabin had left Sisera, the commander of his armies, in control of Israel. And Sisera, 
Well, he wasn't exactly the nicest guy. In fact, the Bible tells us that he had over 900 iron chariots, which meant he was really powerful, and he loved to bully the Israelites. The Israelites tried to resist, but they couldn't do it on their own. After 20 long years of trying to rescue themselves, Israel cried out to God and asked him to rescue them. Kids, it's always a good idea to ask for God's help. Even though God was king of his family, he chose people to lead them. They were called judges. One judge was named Deborah. She was also a prophet. Remember, a prophet is someone who hears from God and shares it. Deborah was a strong, powerful woman who listened to God, helped settle arguments among the Israelites, and worked to lead her nation back to their rescuer. Pretty cool, huh? And she had a message from God. He had heard the cries of the Israelites. So Deborah sent for a man named Barak and told him that if he took 10,000 men up to a place called Mount Tabor, she would bring Commander Sisera to him. Then they could stop Sisera from bullying Israel. But Barak wasn't so sure. In fact, he was pretty worried. He said that he would only go if Deborah would come with him. Deborah told Barak not to worry because God was going to deliver Commander Sisera not through him, but through the hands of a woman. Barak obeyed and gathered his men at Mount Tabor. But when Sisera heard about this new army, he rushed out to battle them with all 900 chariots rumbling along the ground. Now, Deborah could have been scared, but she knew God was with her. She said, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak and his men charged Sisera and his army. The soldiers went forward and, with God's help, defeated Sisera's chariots. Every one of his soldiers were killed, so Sisera went running for his life. He ran to a tent owned by a woman named Jael and asked her to hide him. She agreed and covered him with a blanket. He was pretty tired from all that running, so he fell asleep. Once he was fast asleep, however, Jael grabbed a tent stake and drove it through his head with a hammer. Sisera was dead. When Barak arrived at the camp, Jael led him to Sisera's body. Just like Deborah had prophesied, Sisera had been delivered to Barak through the hands of a woman. With Sisera gone, God led his special family in battle after battle until Jabin, king of all of Canaan, had to surrender before the little nation of Israel. After that, Deborah and Barak burst into song, praised God, and celebrated how God had saved his family. And then there was peace for 40 years. And that's the story of Deborah. So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. Israel was in trouble. They cried out to God. Deborah told Barak God had a plan. Barak led 10,000 soldiers into battle. God helped the Israelites beat Sisera's chariots. Sisera fled to Jael's tent. Jael killed Sisera. The Israelites defeated Canaan. Deborah and Barak praised God in song. There was peace for 40 years, and that's a part of God's story. Isn't that a cheery story? Um, so, if you don't know, we work through the same material in, uh, in here as you do with your kids in Kids Zone, so that you can have conversations afterwards. I just want to let you know what they're doing over there. We went to Hobby Lobby and got a bunch of big foam balls, okay? And the first half of the talk today, they're drawing faces on them, right? Then after about halfway through, we got some tent stakes and some hammers, and they're just <laughs> hammering it through the foam balls, right? I'm just joking. They're not doing that. This is broken, isn't it? This is the stories that we're reading in the Bible. What are we doing with this? 
I thought God was not a God of murder and wrath in that way. And we see, not only does someone die, that's a terrible way to go, right? A tin stake through your head. Like, that's vampire type stuff. I'm from the South. I'm allowed to call it a vampire, right? And so, like, what do you do with this? And it makes sense. If this is in our scriptures, we'd figure that out. Well, we're not reading that story. We're going to read a more heinous one, or at least as heinous in just a second. But I do want to kind of point out some things here. Um, one, it is a really broken story. Really broken, and really sad, and really gruesome. And there is real pain and consequences of sin. Well, that's not what this story is about. Next one you'll get to. But I do, I do want to make sure we identify some stuff here. Um, the really neat thing about God in this is that things are not always, they're n- never how they seem, and they're never going to go the way that we think they should, right? One of the big kind of shots at the, the church right now is how oppressive it is, particularly to females. I just want to point this out. Long before females were kind of honored in the way that they should, God, even in the Old Testament, gave us glimpses of what he saw as for, in females' role in, in the church, right? You see Barak, who is afraid, and he's the mighty warrior. You see this wise, discerning woman who leads him into battle, confidently knowing that the Lord's going to do something. And then, even at the end, when you'd think, okay, finally he's going to have his day, it's not him, it's some other lady that's introduced. Jael, or Yael, depending on how you pronounce that. And this is not love. This is a soldier's wife, right? And I, I know some of you soldier's wives. I know many of you have done the take care of the kids, be the single parent while your husband is away. And, you know, in the Middle East. And it is a broken, broken, complicated process, right? Some of you are in that story right now. And what I do know about you is you are tough and you are strong, right? Everybody's like, your husband's such a great soldier. And you're like, not in my house, right? I'm the one who brings the war, right? So kind of joking there, but not really. And that you see this soldier's wife as kind of the one who goes, I'm going to put an end to this. Enough is enough. Let's be done with it, right? And so you see this story, but in some way I go, what do we do with this story? How do we reconcile this God that we think is a God of possibility who literally takes away all possibilities for Sisera? Takes them all away. Is he a bad God? Is this what he wants us to do? Does he want us to wage war like it is in the Old Testament? And in order to figure that out, we're going to read another story. Judges chapter 3, and it's just as heinous. So prepare yourself. I hope you have a strong stomach. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Here's what it says. So the land had peace for 40 years. This is after, until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. So they had just walked through all this stuff. Salvation came. They repented salvation. And they're now back in this land of possibility. And then the judge dies. The one who keeps them focused. The one who keeps them accountable. Then all of a sudden, the guardrails disappear. And they chase after everything again. Right? Because they haven't had a heart change. They're literally just following the person in front of them. And if that person was godly, they're in good shape. It's like lemmings. Right? And now they're not. No one's there anymore. So they're just walking around off a cliff. Watch what happens. Verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So a couple things to point out there. First, you should see the word again. This is a pattern. And you see that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Also really interesting. We saw this last week. This isn't that they're doing egregious acts. They're not murdering people. They're not molesting people. They're not doing those things. When we saw it last week, what this meant is they just turned their eyes to fault idols. I mean, they gave their allegiance to another God, and that's where God gets angry. And we know, in that anger, God goes, do you think that God will sustain you? Do you think that God will fulfill you? Have it. Go consume it. See how it works for you. So he turns them over. Oh, you think that kingdom is what's going to be enough for you? Here, 
Go be a part of that kingdom. You want that? Okay, this might be the best way for you to get clarity. The clarity don't get pain. And so he releases them into this new kingdom with this guy named Eglon, king of Moab. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. So they thought they're going to have this great little world, and God turns them over. He removes his provision. He removes his protection. And the next thing you know, they're enslaved again, right? They just have gone through this pattern. They rebelled. God gets angry. And now they're going to be in pain. And watch this. And so what happens next is that uh, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years of pain. Frankly, some of you know exactly what that's like. Some of you can go all the way back to 2001, 2000, 1999, 1998. For the last time, you remember living in some kind of peace. Right? Some of you have gone two decades with whatever it is you're feeling with. Your marriage, your job, your health. And you are exhausted. And it would make sense if you've been exhausted that long and go, Nope, God can't do the impossible. Nope, God can't heal this. God can't free me from that. God can't. And so literally, these are the same people, 18 years of this misery, and they go, oh my goodness, this is enough. And watch verse 15. Again, there's the word again. The Israelites cried out to the Lord, and, gave, and he gave them a deliverer. So here it is again. Brings in salvation. Going to lead them to a land of possibility. Watch what happens. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gar the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Talk about it here. You're going, oh, they mentioned left-handed. I want you to know why. Um, the Israelites are huge baseball fans. And all their pitchers are all right-handed. And they're like, we can't keep that guy on first base. Like, we don't have any good pickoff moves. I mean, he's all on our back, you know. And so they bring in a left-handed pitcher, right? No, not at all. This is not at all what's going on here, right? Um, in fact, <laughs> you see the fact that it talks about a left-handed guy. This is a jab at Ehud. Listen, in that <coughs> culture, it was very rare to have a left-handed person. And um, the outcasts weren't celebrated, right? It wasn't cool if you had your own individualism that people were like, oh, he's got cool hair. Man, look at that. You did not want to stick out in Israelite culture, right? You were a, you were a sheep and a lemming, and you stayed apart, and you didn't stick out. And so because it was a rare thing, a lot of times what happened is they were considered greatly handicapped, and they were ostracized, Right? They didn't, they didn't let them play in the, in the right-handed games, right? You understand what I'm saying? That was like a Rudolph reference. didn't fall the way I wanted it to. Sorry, I would have to sing more of the song. I don't have time for it. But anyway, so, um, so what would happen is if parents started seeing their kids kind of lean towards their left hand, they would smack the spoon out and put it in the right. Right? So it's very, 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 very rare to see someone who was left-handed. And the ones that you did see are left-handed was almost always. I mean, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time. The reason they'd have been left-handed is because their right hand didn't work. So they had this disability. So you're seeing this deliverer, and they go, the left-handed guy? The one probably with the shriveled right hand, the one who can't do anything with anything else? He's going to be our warrior king? That's not at all what Joshua looks like. Joshua had abs. This guy doesn't have abs. He has one hand, right? And so they would have, they would have questioned this. And then it says that, the, um, that he was going to go give... The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So they're going to go and give... I don't know, Moab, a People's Choice Award, a Grammy, some kind of like a little award, going, oh, you're the best king ever. So this deliverer, judge, is going to the king. And the way by which he's getting access to him is this false celebration of how good of a god he is. 
right? And so, watch what it says. Um, now, Ehud had made a double-edged sword and about a cubit long. Uh, uh, that can be anywhere from 21 to 17 and a half inches. Hebrew folks kind of measured it in the lower end, 17 and a half. That's really important, plus handle. You'll see why in just a second. So, an 18-inch, you know, a foot and a half sword. Um, double-edged, um, which he strapped to his right thigh underneath his clothing. So, it's here. Really easy for a left-handed person to get to. It'd be really hard for a right-handed person. It was in a hidden place underneath the robe. Okay? Really important for this. Uh, so we know that there's some kind of, you know, plot and plan. This is like the movie where you see them making the plastic gun that they're going to sneak in somewhere. This is that kind of scene. You follow me? So um, verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. This is really important. Thanks a lot here, Samuel. We think you wrote this. He was a very fat man. Why in the world is this in the Bible? Like he's body shaming the king? That's not nice. This is definitely not 2020. Samuel is not woke. I will tell you that, right? And so he can't say that. And you go, why does he say that? Well, you're going to see part of the reason in just a second. But if you've ever spent any time in third world undeveloped countries, you can figure out who the rich people are. Every time. Real easy. Just find the heavy ones. They're the ones with access to a lot more, and they just consume a lot more, right? You can really see it throughout those kind of cultures. And so this is probably an indication that this is a guy who's pilfered from his people, who are starving, who are struggling, and he is fat, very fat, and happy. So we know that. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. So um, he gives them the big thing. Obviously, it's a pretty big award, big piece of gold, whatever it is, and because multiple people have to carry it, and they go on their way, so they're leaving. But on reaching the stone, images near Gilgal, a lot we could talk about there, don't have time to, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. So this is clever. So he takes his Israelite you know, people with him. They carry the tribute, and they walk back. He's not telling the Israelites. This is, he's keeping this you know, loose lips, sink ships. Nobody knows what's going on. So he is, he's sending them on the way, and he goes, oh, I've got to tell the king something. So he goes back to the king, travels you know, kilometers back, and gets back. And he decides to tickle the king's ear with something that's always a nice economy for all of us, a secret. Hey, I have a secret. And the king's like, ooh, love secrets, right? Like he's Cookie Monster. Sorry about that. <laughs> so weird. And so he sends, he sends the, um, the, the rest of you away. And so they would have checked him. They didn't make sure he's safe. But they would have checked left thigh, all that kind of stuff. So they're going, ah, he doesn't have anything. He's a crippled man. Come on in, right? And so now we have the scene. It is set. Ehud and this great, mighty, very fat king are in closed, behind closed doors together. Let's see what happens. Verse 20. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. This is true. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, didn't expect this, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade. Big man. Very fat, right? So 18 inches plus a handle. Talking about two feet going in. Disgusting. And bowels discharged. I was thinking, y'all probably don't understand what this looks like. So we got some pictures. I'm just joking. <laughs> We're only showing those in the kids' service. Uh, bowels discharged. Ehud, listen to this, did not pull the sword out. And the fat closed in over it. It's real easy to poke fun at this because it is a strange story. But guys, this is devastating. This is a devastating way to go. So, 24 inches to the point where the bowels come out of him. Like, 
He used the bathroom all over himself. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors and opened room behind him and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, He must be relieving himself because we smell something. You smell that? He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. So they go, Ehud left, he's in there. Man, it smells bad in there. Wonder what he had for lunch. That kind of thing, right? And they're like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. We should probably leave him alone because he's, you know, got dissidents or something, right? And so all sorts of mess. What do we do? Oh, let's just leave him alone. Now watch what it says in verse 25. They waited to the point of embarrassment. Okay, like we haven't checked on him, but should we check on him? But we can't go in there, right? What do we do, right? And to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room... King, you're all right in there? <laughs> so uncomfortable. They took a key and unlocked them, which they were not happy about. No one wants to walk in on the king using the bathroom, particularly if it's number three. They saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. Okay? So we go, what do we do with this? It's a strange story. Sword in the belly, a guy dies, goes... The... So I think, and I've been asking the Lord, talking through it, going, okay, what do you, what do you want us to share here? And... I think I, I kind of come with it. And here's, here's what I think. I, here, here's, I think, the principle we all got to learn. If someone you love is in the bathroom and they're there too long, you should go in. Okay, the band's going to come back up. And <laughs> it's not all with the story. So go, what do you do with this, right? While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. When he arrived, he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, right? Follow me, he ordered. For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords. That's the lower part of the water. That's where everybody would to travel of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross. No, imagine when people tried to cross, only way they could get over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. 80 years. We would like peace for 80 years, every single one of us. So, what do we do with this story? Kill kings? Is this, is this a message on tyrants and nationalism and borders? I mean, is it? I mean, we're in the middle of a mess right now. Is this, what, is this what this is talking about? Like, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? And then, even make it more complicated, I give you a small glimpse. You'll get more of the next few weeks. Keep coming back. It's going to take us a while to resolve this whole thing. Small glimpse of these are imperfect kings, our imperfect judges who come and save the day. And what they're able to do is save the day till they die. And when they die, it all starts over again. This pattern just keeps going and going over and over again. The only solution is that there's some judge who comes and leaves them. And then there's a period where there's no more judges and all hell breaks loose. For an entire nation, all generations, it's just broken. And for hundreds of years, God is silent and it's just a mess. Then all of a sudden you see this picture in the New Testament where Jesus shows up, right? And the way by which he shows up is as this baby, like no one would expect handicapped, right? You would never expect this kind of stuff. And you know, this is not the person you think of as going to be the king. And he shows up in a weird way in that he's born to a virgin. And then we see this story of someone else in the story, the, 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 the husband-to-be, Joseph, who goes, there's no way this is possible. And then we see the angel Lord whisper, hey, no, it is possible, and you're going to name him Joshua. Jesus is the name in the Greek. Joshua is the name in the Hebrew. Because he's going to save the people, right? We've got to get saved. So who is he saving us from? What king? What tyrant? He says, from their sins. So we see this isn't a picture of how do we fight off kings? How do we find our enemy and take them down? The enemy isn't out there. It's not another nation. 
It's not your boss. It's not your spouse. It's not your ex. That's not where the enemy is. What, what we see in that picture is he's telling us to look inward because what we need saving from is actually our sins. So why in the world would God show us these kings die in the way they do? Here's why I think it is. So I was reading a book by a guy named Carlos Whitaker. You may know him, may not. Um, have an affinity to him. He went to the same school that Julie did, sang in the same uh, kind of singing group that Julie did a few years before her. And um, at Berry College, from California, was a worship leader at Sandals Church. Then he went and worked at North Point and then kind of did his own thing all over the place. And while he was having lots of really, really great outward, you know, experiences, like um, seeing God do lots of great stuff, inwardly his life was a huge mess. To the point where he wrecked his marriage. Um, that does get redeemed um, in his story. And he writes this book called Kill the Spider. Okay? And in the book, he talks about how he went to years of counseling and just had all sorts of broken parts of his life that he just couldn't fix. In fact, his counselor looked at him and says, you know what you're good at, Carlos? You're good at smearing poop all over your blessings. Backward. And he's like, and he's like, I've been going to the counseling for two years, week after week, and boy, do I identify with this guy, right? All this kind of stuff going, God, okay, this is just my lot. I got anxiety. I got depression. This is how it's going to work. Carlos kind of going the same thing. And this counselor looks at him and says, you're going to do something a little bit more intensive than once a week. So he suggested him to go to the seven-day, called on-site in Nashville, the seven-day individual or group therapy, right? Intensive therapy. And so he goes, okay, I guess I'm going to do this. I got to get some freedom. My life's a mess. And he packs up his kids. So they, they're going with him, staying in the cabins, wife, kids, they're going. And as he's about to get there, he's about 10 minutes away, he gets a phone call from his dad. Now his dad is from Panama, came over to America 40, 30 decades ago, I don't know exactly how long, became a pastor over here, like well-known guy, his name's Fermin Whitaker. And his dad's like, hey, Carlos, wanted to talk to you before you go. Do you got a second? He's like, I got about five minutes, dad, 10 minutes. And he's like, can I tell you a story? And Carlos is going, yeah, sure, dad, tell me a story. And he tells him the story of when he was in Panama, decade or two decades, sometime in the past, doing a Revival. No, you're not familiar with revivals. Basically, just like multiple days of church every evening for a while. Some of you had those experiences, some more intense, some of them churches. Really neat thing. And so, um, uh, Fermin was talking about how he was doing these revival services. And at, at the end, people come up and he'd pray with them. And this, he said, this lady came up on the first night and said, uh, Pastor, like I am so filled with anxiety and uh, mess, and I got so much going on. Would you pray that God would clear the spider webs out of my head? Just complete chaos, can't see. And so he lays hands in the name of Jesus, blood of Jesus, you know, all those things. Would you uh, heal this lady of the spider webs in her head? And then goes home, does his, he's telling Carlos' story. He comes back next night, preaches this again, and guess who's coming down front? Hey, some of the spider webs came, got out, but it seems like more came back. So they prayed the same prayer. Maybe the third night, same thing. Prayed the same prayer. Maybe, maybe I don't remember exact days. And finally, on the last night, this lady comes and she goes, I still got the spider webs. And so he goes to pray and he says he's about to pray for her. The Holy Spirit convicted him and says, you've got to stop praying for the spider webs to get out. And he says, you've got to pray that, that she kills the spider. See that? Yeah. So it's not the spider webs. The spider webs aren't the problem, right? They're just the evidence. Uh, they're just the symptom of a bigger problem. So he started praying. Uh, God, would you help her kill the spider? And he says, Carlos, 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 you are 40 years old and you have spent decades being a miracle worker as it comes to cleaning out spider webs. But you can't continue the rest of your life cleaning out spider webs, right? Okay, good, good, good possibility. Okay, that went enough, right? You can't do that because it's just a spin and a cycle. And he's like, you can't do that. At some point, you've got to kill the spider. In fact, I was looking at how spiders make webs. I want you to see this real quick. Would you fire this up for me, Christine? This is literally the cycle of what a spider does. You see that? It just starts in the middle, and it just keeps spinning, and it keeps spinning, and it keeps spinning, and it just creates this massive web. And you don't even know it's there until you walk into it in the middle of the dark. 
And so what Carlos explains in his book, I would recommend that you read it, he says that the spider that you and I have to kill, right, is an agreement you've made with a lie. An agreement you made with a lie. Then all of a sudden you look back at the book of Judges and go, who's the one giving the orders? The king. The, the soldiers aren't the problem. They're the webs. You've got to go back and take out the, the one who's making the commands, right? So you see Jael take out the commander of the 10,000 troops. You see Ehud take out the king, right? This is what's so weird is we say things like wars are where old men send young men to die. And these rules of engagement, you see all that kind of getting broken up right now. But what you see is you go, no, 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 Carlos, you have to kill the spider. So I would say, you want to get out of the cycle. What I think you can see in the Old Testament in the book of Judges is they go right to the source. They go right to the commander and they go, no, no, you can't keep creating this. So he explains that the spider is a lie that you've come into agreement with. Here's what that means. It is a lie that you believe is true. It's a lie that you believe is true. And then he explains, the spider webs... Those are just all the different ways you try to numb yourself from that pain. Right? As I told you, pain is actually really, really a gracious gift, but we don't like the pain. So what do we do? We distract ourselves from it. We numb ourselves. From it. We flee from it. And he's like, and we spend our time making a mess because of what we flee. And then after we flee it, we go back and clean up the spider webs. And some of you, some of us, have been in this pattern for decades of just spinning and cleaning spider webs. And let me tell you, I know from firsthand experience. It is exhausting. And you go, yep, I agree. So how do I kill the spider? Well, first, you've got a different thing you have to do. And it'll take me a few minutes to walk you through this. But here's the first thing you've got to do here. You don't have to kill the spider. First, you have to identify it. Right? Great opportunity. This is why I'm a huge fan of counseling. Why we help launch a nonprofit counseling center. By the way, raised $37,000 at the end of uh, December to continue to offer free and reduced and uh, subsidized counseling. I'm a huge fan of it because some of that is there actually spending time and energy going. How do you identify the, count, uh, the spider? And let me be real clear here. I think counseling is a great way to identify it, but I don't think it's the right way to kill it. Right? I, this is where the spiritual side of me would just go in and go. I actually think you need the resurrection power, the God of the universe, to deal with your spiders. Now, now, you can identify it, you can locate it, you can corner it, and there's some ways to do that. And you go, I'm not ready for counseling. I think you should anyway. But even if you're not ready for that, let me give you a couple of things you can do to help identify the spiders in your life. By the way, there's more than one. It's like, you got one spider kill. No, no, this is a, what you're going to do now is you're going to pick up a way to live the rest of your life, continuing to identify those things and dealing with them. First thing I do is identify them. And there's a couple questions you can ask, or one in particular that I think is helpful for identifying spiders. And here's what it is. Why? Why? So the next time you go to pour that drink, add a little bit more. Really, really good question. Why are you pouring that? Why do you need a little bit more? And you'll have an answer probably. Oh, I just need to relax. just need to relax or I just need to not feel that. Oh, okay, why do you need to relax? Oh, the reason I need to relax is because my job is overwhelming. Well, why is your job overwhelming? Well, because, I mean, my boss has a high expectation of me. If I don't do it, then I won't keep my job. But why are you worried about keeping your job? Well, because if I don't keep my job, then I won't be able to take care of my family. If I can't take care of my family, my wife will leave me. Why are you worried that your job is what keeps your wife with you? Well, because um, every other person I knew, my mom, my dad, my sister, the only reason they stayed around was God's able to do something for them. Hmm. And there's a lie. You believe the way that people love and are connected to you is based on your performance. 
This isn't about the dream. That's a spider web. This isn't about what you look at on the computer. This isn't about the lie. Somewhere deep down inside you, there is this belief that your value comes from your performance. Right? And here's what I'll tell you. At the base level of all these things, and we don't have time to go through them all, okay? At the base level, here's what I want you to know is really the lie. You do not believe that what God believes is possible is possible. You don't believe what God believes is possible is possible. You don't believe that you can be loved so much that it doesn't have to do with your performance. You don't believe if you wreck your whole life, there is still a God and a church family who will love you regardless. You don't believe what God believes is possible is possible. Right? And that's not going to solve all your stuff. But you got to go, okay, how in the world do I identify it? Some of us asking the question why, but again, that's so psychobabble, which I love. And still is picking up and removing the real opportunity in this. And this is the God of the universe knows every part of you and was with you when that moment of pain entered your life. That moment where your mom or dad walked away and you told yourself your story that the only way you could be loved is if you performed well enough. That God of the universe, Jesus, was with you. And here's how the scriptures talk about it. It talks about how God brought himself as, here's the word, light. Light. So, what we're talking about here, and this would make sense to us, where you find spiders is in the light, not in the dark. Right? So you bring light into it. You know, what's interesting we think about this, we talk about Jesus comes to save sins. What we're really talking about is Jesus came to save us from ourselves and the lies that we believe about ourselves and about our world. We believe that God cannot do what he says is possible. That's what we believe. And so Jesus comes to help us out because the whole Old is like, no, God doesn't love us enough. He's not going to send us a good enough judge. All the judges are going to keep dying. Yep. They are. And then Jesus is going to die too. But then he's going to come back to life and go, what I said is possible is possible. And so John, one of Jesus' buddies, is the guy who walked with Jesus, knew Jesus well. In fact, when Jesus dies, he's the one at the bottom of the cross. To the point where Jesus looks at him and goes, I need you to take care of my mom. And first century history, church history will tell us that John was actually the one who, who prepares and does the funeral and the burial for Mary. Beautiful guy, right? And so John, one of Jesus' youngest of his disciples, he's the one who writes the book of John. He says he writes it, the biography, so that we would believe in all this stuff. And he also writes the book of Revelation, which gives us a picture of the way things are going to be. He tells us there will come a day, Revelation 21, will there will be no more tears or pain. But then he also, later in his life, as an old wise man, probably 90 AD, so 56 years after Jesus' death, he writes a letter to the church. Writes a letter to his church, right? And he wants us to know about this. About this God who actually came to free us from this. And he opens up his letter. It's called 1 John. It's um, the kind of the first letter he writes to this church to kind of invite them into this real life of freedom and peace and hope. I just want to read to you what it says. 1 John 1. This is what it says. That which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus who always was. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our, hand, our hands have touched. He's like, I've touched him. I'm not making this stuff up. Like, don't see this as 66 six random books. This is a real dude in history who touched and felt and wiped tears off Jesus' face. Like, I saw him. And I'm so wondering if, if people are going to know this in 10 years or hundreds of years. So he puts this book together. He says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. That word logos, the way of life, the way by which we live. Watch what he says. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. So he's going, you're looking for life. Let me just refer to Jesus as that, the life. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. So he's going, hey, church, you get in on this too. You get in on this freedom. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Now watch why he says, let me tell you why I write this. We write this to make our, collectively, church, 
joy complete. So here's what he's saying to us. Hey, 2020, you can make your plans. But wouldn't your plans really want to have real, complete joy? So John, hundreds and thousands of years ago, writes this for us. Hey, you're part of this fellowship. Let me tell you how you can have this joy. And this is, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. He's going, this is all possible. This is really possible. God is light. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. You want to live without darkness, you find it in God. And then he's going to give us these five if-then statements. These are all about possibility. If you do something, then this is what's possible. So he's going to tell us prescriptively what it looks like to walk in this freedom. And watch what he says. You want the spiders killed. When I identify the spiders, here's what you do. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. If you cannot come into some agreement that you have some issues in your own life that are creating spider webs, then you are lying to yourself. And you're doing damage to yourself. And by the way, you're doing damage to people around you. Like, if you want to have this fellowship and enjoy this joy, you have to actually have the courage to admit that there are some broken parts of you. That's what I love about our church. We are all broken people. None of us have this figured out. All of us have spider webs and spiders we have to kill. Every single person in this room. And he says, uh, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, if we can deal with the truth of this, as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And watch this. If we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, will purify us from all sin. Listen, you no longer believe what God believes is possible. It's possible. He is telling you you don't have to live in anxiety. He's telling you you can be freed from your depression and your pain and your sorrow. He's telling you you don't have to go back to that thing that you think you have to have for the rest of your life. He's telling you you can walk in complete freedom if you live in his light. He said he'll purify you from all that. And you go, I'm not sure that's possible. I'm going, go on just for a second. Can't we just live in that land of possibility? What if it's possible? Okay, if that's the case, what do I do? How do I find this freedom? Oh, this is so beautiful. Verse 8. If. If we claim to be without sin. Again, no, no. Got to lean into this. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in this. Don't pretend like it's not a big deal. Don't pretend like it's not an issue. This is your moment of freedom. And watch how you get it. Here, so if you, if you want to pretend that you don't have sin, then you're going to not walk in freedom. Right? But if you want it, here's what it says in verse 9. If we confess our sins. So step two, we identify it. Step, uh, step one, we identify it. Step two, we confess it. If, if we confess it. If we confess our sins. Here's what it says. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. So let me tell you how we confess. What do you do to confess? Do you just say, oh, woe with me. I did it again. I looked at it again. No, no, no. It's much more than that. Here's the first step of confession. I told you I'm not writing anymore so y'all can read. Okay? <laughs> You actually admit it. You admit that you believe the lie that you thought was true. You break agreement with that lie. I thought that thing was going to be the thing. I thought that person was going to fulfill me, sustain me, forgive me, give me all the hope. I thought it was the car. I thought it was the job. I thought it was the bank account. I thought it was the, the, the 30 pounds gone or the 30 pounds added. I believed in my head that was true. I told myself I would only be loved, only be known, only be cared for if blank. Admit that you believe that. But don't stay there, right? Admit that you believe the lie. And then, watch this. After you admit it, then wholeheartedly reject it. After you admit it, wholeheartedly reject it. I believe this to be true, but God, I know it's not true. 
I believe that that would be the thing that would fix me. I believe that if I felt, if I did, if I performed, if I understood that somehow if I did all the right things, you would finally welcome me. I know that's now not true. I know you don't need those things. If I confess these things in my mouth, it says God is, watch this, faithful and just. That means the promise he made in Genesis 11 to Abraham who was broken is the same promise that's still available to you. Same God yesterday, today, and forever. He is going, I will forgive you. I am faithful. I have said when you turn towards me, I will welcome you with open arms. He is faithful. But now watch this. He's not just faithful. He is just. He is just. That is a judicial term. That means there is a punishment for your sin. And so when you think about sin, you want to cower. You go, no, no, I actually probably deserve to be beaten for that. If everyone knew that, well, there'd be a lot of punishment. In fact, there are things in this room that you're going, if I confess it, I'd be in jail. Right? There are those kind of things and he's going, no, no. God is faithful, meaning he's going to forgive you, but he's just. Meaning he actually has forgiven you for a very specific reason. It's because your penalty has already been paid. Right? Because Jesus already paid it on the cross. It's the story of the gospel. He goes, no, no, I'll pay the price. I don't want him to live in pain. And he pays the price for you and frees you from that. So what happens is every time you confess, it's not like God and Jesus are up there going, oh, got to forgive Josh again. What a doofus. He, Jesus is literally saying to his dad, no, God, paid for that one. Oh, paid for that one too. Yep, paid for that one. Nope, already covered that one. Nope, I remember that one on the cross. He's literally saying that he is faithful. I mean, he's going to do this and just me. You've got to stop beating yourself up. Reject the lie that you deserve more punishment. You see, that's one of the lies that you're in agreement with. That you deserve to be alone, to be in pain, to be hurt, to never have intimacy. You deserve those things as a result of your behavior or someone else's behavior in your past. You believe that there are consequences for those things. And what this scripture is telling us is there were consequences. You are correct. But they've already been paid. So you have to stop beating yourself up for what God already was beaten up for. That is double jeopardy. And God is a just God. And he is not going to allow that. He's faithful and just. And watch what it says he'll do. He will forgive us of our sins. Make us right there. And purify us from all unrighteousness. He actually will remove those things. And then he gives us one more charge here. And he says, if we've claimed to not have sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. You go, no, no, I don't need all that. What you're literally saying is that God's a liar. What you're literally saying is you turn your back on God and go, no, I got it on my own. I don't need any help. I don't need any saving. And the reality is when you're basically calling God a liar, I just would say, not trying to scare you in this way. You keep coming back here. You're welcome here. But God's going, okay, okay. He's going to go. He's going to remove his protection and provision. So he's saying, you lean in, you confess, you admit, and you reject. But that's not the end. You can't just confess. There's one other piece I want you to see as the band comes up. Then you replace. You replace. You replace the lies with truth that you are a child of the Most High God. Listen, you cannot do anything to my kids. I, I'll tell you, I'm trying to live in a godly life. But you mess with one of my kids, and I will, I will lose it on you. I'm going to you, you don't mess with my kids. You don't talk about my kids. You don't do any damage to my kids. You got that? Like, that's the one place for redneck Josh from the South. You know, my UFC watching days or whatever it is. I will fight and I will fight illegally, right? It's not even like, I'll fight with your fist. No, you can use your fist. I'm going to grab every single weapon I can find because you don't mess with my kids, right? You are a child of the most high God. You go, well, how do I know what to replace it with? Oh, really, really good. Here's, the, here's what you replace it with. God's word. You open it, you read it, you come and you learn it. God is in love with you. He wants you to live a fully satisfying life. Jesus says he came to, the, the enemy came to still kill the but he comes to give you life and life to the fullest. That's what he wants from you. But it's not just God's word because we would look at, you know, one of the things that John says is John chapter 4. He says, perfect love casts out fear. So we go, okay, God's word. Let me memorize that. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. 
It's not the scripture that casts out fear. You get this? It's actually Jesus' love that casts out the fear. It's the fact that he loves you that much. Not that you read some scripture and memorize it. It's the truth of what the scripture is saying. And guess what all the scripture says? It points to this. God's love for you. And I was going to be finished with that last night. And go, okay, that's it. That's good. We'll sing the song. And I was sitting on there praying, God, am I missing something? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm about to walk up on stage to preach. And he's like, Josh, you forgot about the greatest gift I gave my people at my resurrection. You forgot that the same power that I used to conquer the grave now can live in my people. Right? And this is a crazy thing. You have the Holy Spirit. And you go, no, I don't think that's possible. Oh, break agreement with that lie. It is possible. The same power that conquered the grave wants to invade every part of you, bring light in every part of you, and give you full freedom. Full freedom. And you're going, I just don't know that I can believe that. I'm like... How about you just try? How about you go, God, I don't know if I can believe it, but I think it's possible. What if it's just possible? So what's going to happen is we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song about trusting in Jesus. And at the same time, some of you might just need to talk to God about that. Maybe you need to ask Him to shine light into this place. Maybe you just want to pause where you are and pray. Maybe you want to come down front here because it just seems to be a right step to pray. Or right here to my right, we'll have some people who'd be happy to pray with you. You're going, I don't even know how to pray about this by myself. But I'm telling you, it is possible and it's real. And I've had a really hard time preaching this message. All week I've just been hung up on going, God, I'm literally preaching things that I need to be doing. So here's what I'll invite you into. Doing this alongside me. All right, I'll track with you. I'll keep telling you what God's doing in my life. Going, I believe that God can free me from anxiety. I believe that's actually possible. So I don't know what it is that you need to believe is possible, but it's possible. So would you stand with me as we sing this song together? That we can trust in God. <laughs>